volume. A warm hello and welcome to our listeners. It's been a while since you've heard from the Zodo Commission Unpacked podcast, which is brought to you by Corruption Watch, of course, and produced by Volume Podcasts. I'm your host, Mwepeng Valin Shatalani. We have indeed been away for a while. In fact, we kind of wrapped up around the same time that the Commission, State Capture Commission rather, itself wrapped up. And then we thought it would be a great idea to pick things up again at this point and then reconnect with some of the guests that we've had in the past to talk about this very important topic of state capture in South Africa. One of the ways that the state has responded to the institutional flaws laid bare by the commission is by committing to review some of the laws that govern them. We have, for one, the Public Procurement Bill, which is now before Parliament, And it is, of course, government's hope that it will address the issue of the professionalization of the public procurement space. There's also a review underway of the whistleblower protection legislation. And of course, Parliament itself has promised to review its own mechanisms in order to enable it to respond better to corruption in the country. To talk to us today about where we are with these processes and whether or not we are indeed winning the war against state capture and whether or not we'll be able to reverse it is the executive director of CASAC, Lawson Naidu. Lawson, welcome back to Zondo Commission Unpacked. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you again. Perhaps a good place to start is here. CASAC, together with PARI, hosted a brilliant platform in September last year in the form of the State Capture Commission Conference. You had a great number of speakers. You had uh, you know, a great amount of insight was shared by the speakers and basically everybody who engaged in the conversations there. Of course, at the end of that, you guys uh, produced a well-rounded report. Won't you please tell us the inspiration behind the conference, the first conference, and now that we're heading towards a second one, why is it that you guys felt that we need to continue the conversation around state capture? You know, the impetus for the conference last year was really, uh, it was uh, convened uh, shortly, just a few months after uh, the Ch- Chief Justice had uh, submitted his final uh, volume of reports to the President. And we felt it was necessary uh, to unpack some of the key systemic recommendations that were contained in the report relating to issues such as procurement, whistleblower protection, the role of the private sector, the role of Parliament, and so on and really interrogate those recommendations to see whether they were really appropriate, whether they could be refined and improved in any way. And we brought together a range of actors from civil society, from academia and the like. Uh, And I think it was a very fruitful conference uh, that really uh, got to grips with the the detail of some of those recommendations. And uh, so I think, you know, it was a very, very uh, timely conference that we held. Uh, it it got uh, you know significant uh, input and interest from uh, you know interested stakeholders, uh, and uh, I think that put a, a line in the sand in terms of saying which of these recommendations of Zonda really need to be prioritised and put forward, which maybe needs some uh, some further work in terms of refinement, and uh, you know like you said uh, in your introduction, 
you know, unless we keep the spotlight on the uh, Zonda Commission and its reports and recommendations, uh, you know, it's likely to end up uh, on the shelves as many other reports from commissions of inquiry have in the past. So I think the onus rests on civil society to really keep the focus on those recommendations to ensure that they are implemented. And that's really the, uh, the, the thinking behind this follow-up conference that we will be hosting in a couple of weeks' time uh, together between Parry and, and, and CASAC. And, and the focus this time around is going to be on, and now that we've had the response from the President in, um, in October last year to Parliament, and we have had Parliament's own response to the Zonda Commission's recommendations insofar as they relate to Parliament itself, we felt that this was an opportune time to really uh, begin to uh, look at what progress has been made uh, where where are the gaps? Where uh, does greater emphasis and impetus need to come from? And uh, and that's really the purpose of this conference is to uh, uh, is to really assess where we are now and uh, what more needs to be done. What are the pressure points and where does uh, additional pressure need to be applied from a civil society perspective? A very important part of what we need to review as a country is, of course, Parliament and its processes. With us going into the, the national elections next year, it means that we, we give rise to a new Parliament thereafter. And um, one law or piece of legislation that has been um, really at the tip of a, a lot of people's tongues is the Electoral Amendment Act, which uh, many have said has a lot of shortcomings it it sounds like uh, the ruling party trying to bully smaller parties or independent candidates and 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 the likes into a corner so that it continues in the spirit that it has been handling affairs of of parliament in what is Kasak's take on the on the act itself and do you agree that it has the, 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 the potential of creating even bigger problems in terms of how Parliament responds in future to issues of corruption in, in the national executive and, and uh, government departments and other institutions? Uh, well, let me start by saying I think, you know, I would agree with you that the, uh, the Electoral Amendment Act, as was passed by Parliament uh, this year, it, it remains uh, very flawed. Uh, and I think... Uh, it's not a fit-for-purpose piece of legislation. It's not a fit-for-purpose uh, electoral system. And, uh, you know, the parliament has bent over backwards to try and retain as much of the current system as they can whilst accommodating independent candidates uh, as they were directed to do in terms of the judgment of the Constitutional Court in the New Nation Movement case. Uh, what I would say, though, is it's not just the ruling party that has taken this position. I think most of the, uh, the larger political parties in, uh, currently represented in the National Assembly uh, quite like the current electoral system because it gives parties total control over their members. Uh, and that's something that political parties are, are clearly not uh, keen to, uh, to, uh, you know, to lose that control that they have. So what would have made most sense from, a, from our perspective as CASAC in terms of a, a fairly and properly accommodating independent candidates and also creating, and I think this is really the important point, uh, we need to create an electoral system that enhances the accountability of our representatives. The model on, uh, that has been just been passed does not do that. 
uh, and the only system that can really do that is some form of cons constituency system. And this is something that uh, Zondo himself made uh, uh, made reference to in his reports, that we need to have some kind of uh, constituency-based electoral system. Uh, it's a mantra that's been repeated over a long period of time from the Fonsell Slavid report over 20 years ago. Uh, but there's a glimmer of hope, I think, in that the Electoral Amendment Act does uh, require the Minister of Home Affairs, together with Parliament, to put in place an electoral reform consultation panel that will advise on further electoral reform. So I think that's an opportunity to really engage in this debate because, yeah. uh, as has become very clear from the, um, the Zondo Commission reports itself, Parliament uh, singularly failed to, uh, to tackle state capture and corruption, even when it was brought to their attention. When they did act, it was far too late in the process. And Parliament really needs to get its house in order to ensure that there's effective oversight of the uh, executive and that uh, you know party political considerations don't trump the interests of the country as a whole. Interesting that you say that in the same week that we, we learned of um, the decisions that the Ethics Committee has taken about, over uh, four members of Parliament that were implicated in the state capture report. Um, of course, it means that uh, public confidence come into, comes into you know, consideration there. You, you, you want members of the public to be able to look at parliament and see it as an institution that does not take care of its own, but one that uh, takes accountability and transparency in its own processes very, very seriously. I was quite surprised uh, that we that the, the ethics committee took the decisions that it did regarding the the MPs that it let go let, let off the hook so to speak. Um, but we will move on to another piece of legislation that um, has had civil society organisations in um, you know in conversation about whether or not the professionalized public procurement space that Zondo had envisaged in his recommendations would actually be realized. Um, the public procurement bill that is now before parliament is also quite a, a piece of legislation that needs a lot of work. Have we rushed that bill? Do you think that it could have taken a lot more time to uh, you know, finesse it and get it into the state that uh, a lot of our CSOs are saying it, it requires, it is required for it to, to, to stand on its fundamental um, role of um, being aligned with Section 217 of the Constitution. Look, I mean, I think it's a difficult one because, uh, you know, one doesn't want to delay these processes unnecessarily. And whilst I agree with you that the uh, the bill that is currently before Parliament falls far short of uh, what is required to really uh, strengthen uh, the procurement system in the country, I think it is a start. And uh, through the parliamentary process, we hopefully, uh, as civil society particularly, have an opportunity to engage with the contents of the bill and make proposals to try and strengthen it. And again, I think it's something that's probably uh, going to be an ongoing piece of work. It's not, I don't think we're going to be able to fix the procurement system in, 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 one, in one go, and that we need to perhaps uh, look at improving it uh, incrementally. And I think this bill is a start. As I say, it falls far short of what's really required, but hopefully we can strengthen it uh, in this process 
because I think we want to avoid the situation which has been all too uh, frequent, where we take far too long developing legislation with policy proposals and the like, and by the time the legislation comes, it's too late. Uh, and I think, uh, uh, as Zonda reports have demonstrated, the urgency of amending the procurement, uh, the way procurement is conducted in South Africa, uh, particularly with regards to deviations policy, which are used, uh, you know, very, very uh, uh, ably, if you uh, if you like, uh, in order to circumvent, uh, as you say, Section Two One Seven of the Constitution in particular. In the past, uh, one of the issues that have come up uh, has been, of course, that the procurement laws are so fragmented, and one piece of uh, policy or legislation doesn't speak to another, and that that's where loopholes are found and used by those um, in, in, in the public sector who wish to, um, of course, perpetrate uh, and, and, and continue with corruption in the public procurement space. So where, in your, in your view, is it fundamentally flawed? Where, where, where do we need to begin if we were to address what, what, what is wrong with the public procurement bill? Because it's it's so decentralized at the moment, uh, and there are lots of different interpretations, and it's a highly regulated uh, space with lo- you know lots of treasury, treasury regulations and, and the like, and there are very di- you know many different interpretations of of how things ought to be done. So I think a level of of uh, centralization, certainly in terms of creating the framework. Uh, for an efficient procurement system to take place, you know, under the gu- uh, the guidance of National Treasury, is something that is probably required. And I think we saw this again, you know, in terms of the procurement for PPE equipment during the COVID nineteen pandemic, where uh, you know a lot of it was devolved to a local level. So I think that's something that we, uh, you know, we need to we need to to look at, uh, and really create a, a sense of of. Or uh, how this is uh, is required to operate in the proper context. National Treasury, is it realistic? Is it practical of us to think that it should perhaps not be have the powers that the pro, the, the the bill itself um, envisages it to have beyond, uh, of course, this process in Parliament once once the bill is uh, comes into effect and it becomes law. Does National Treasury have the capacity to handle what is required of it in terms of the of the the, the piece of legislation? No, I think that that's precisely the uh, the critical point here, where the uh, Treasury does in fact have the capacity, and we know that the Central Procurement Office has been denuded of its capacity in recent times, and that capacity really does need to be built up so that Treasury can play its proper role in terms of overseeing and providing guidance uh, on how pro- uh, procurement processes ought to take place at other levels of, of, uh, of government and, of course, within uh, uh, state-owned enterprises. But we can't even get the, or rather National Treasury can't even get a simple task such as supplier database right. I mean, we, we have, Corruption Watch released um, a report two weeks ago that um, speaks to uh, the procurement risks um, report, trends report, that speaks to how deviations continue to happen and or rather reported deviations uh, on the rise. And that uh, one of the biggest issues there is that where, where there needs to be um, uh, suppliers who are, who should not be in, in business with, with 
the uh, the public sector are, are flagged. It's that database is empty because there isn't efficient uh, monitoring and and management of that system. It it sounds to me like we we probably looking to fix something with a, a, a piece of legislation that we could where we when we could actually start with fixing what is practical and what is already in place would you agree with with that assertion no absolutely like i said the the issue of the capacity of national treasury and the central procurement office within that needs to be uh, looked at as a priority because it would be pointless to put in place an elaborate mechanism or framework uh, and give responsibility to treasury when they don't actually have the uh, capacity to implement so the two have to be looked at together now of course there, there are a number like i said there are a number of uh, pieces of legislation that that um are under review at the moment and of course for civil society organizations the interest is in this um well-rounded uh, outlook as far as whether or not all aspects of what the Zodo Commission set out to fix in, 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 in government systems actually end up working out well. The whistleblower protection in South Africa is an issue that um, we, no, we don't seem to be getting, we have not been seem, seeming to be getting right. Um, earlier in the year, of course, the Department of, of Justice uh, sent out uh, set out to get public participation and consultation in, in terms of um, getting sure, making sure that whistleblower protection legislation is um, enhanced and ask for recommendations from members of the public to, to, to make submissions on that, on that front. Do you feel that we, we are starting to, to make the necessary um, the necessary changes are they effective? Will they be effective? The changes that are recommended by the DOJ, for instance, and will they be sufficient to address the issues of whistleblowers? As we discussed just now, in relation to the preferential procurement bill uh, and this procurement processes, I think the same can be said of the uh, uh, whistleblowing landscape. Uh, the discussion document that was released certainly is a step in the right direction. But again, it doesn't go far enough. Uh, it doesn't provide, in my view, adequate protection for whistleblowers, both at a, a personal as well as at, at a systemic level. Uh, and again, uh, hopefully the Department of Justice will take on board the comments that have been made by the public and by civil society organizations in general uh, and take steps to, uh, to strengthen that policy framework before legislation is introduced. But again, this is an area that requires absolute urgency because we see on an ongoing basis how whistleblowers continue to be victimized and the, and the uh, climate isn't really there to encourage whistleblowers to come forward. And that's something that we need to change because the one thing we've learned from the Zondo Commission is that without uh, the information that has been provided by whistleblowers, we would uh, probably not have exposed half of the corruption that we saw. They're very important in, the, in that space. I mean, if we are to continue to fight corruption, um, you know, it's, it's all good and well to have, you know, uh, laws that say once there is corruption, this is how we, we um, pull out, you know, consequence management mechanisms and things like that. But 
whistleblowers are, are the first point of call in terms of whether or not there has been corruption in the country, in any government institution. What are the key issues that uh, CASAC, for instance, would love to see happening in, in the review or in the reform of whistleblower legislation? Well, I think, you know, there, there are a number of things. The, 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 the definition of a whistleblower needs to be uh, reviewed fundamentally so that it doesn't simply operate within an employer-employee relationship, uh, but uh, is, is expanded more widely so that uh, a larger and a bigger group of people can come under the, uh, uh, the auspices of the new legislation and the protection uh, that it affords. That there also needs to be a culture shift in the way that we view whistleblowers. They often uh, get marginalized and isolated, and they need to be celebrated as people who are, uh, you know, acting in the national interest and, and um, exercising a public responsibility to call out wrongdoing when they, where they see it. And they therefore de are deserving of our protection at a, at a personal level, at, a, at the level of uh, financial security, at the level of uh, uh, psychological support and counseling, and a whole range of issues that, that really uh, would make it worthwhile for whistleblowers to come forward, because at the moment, uh, you know, uh, the kind of uh, support that they get is is totally insufficient, and is probably a deterrent to many more whistleblowers coming forward. Would you say that there has been enough um, public education around what whistleblowing actually entails, and and should this law be the opportunity for for government perhaps to set out on a on some kind of program that enables uh, public officials? And, and empowers them on what whistleblowing actually entails and what uh, circumstances, under which circumstances uh, people are protected and to what extent they are protected. No, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, uh, public awareness uh, around whistleblowing and, and other mechanisms to, to combat cor corruption uh, are absolutely necessary. And I certainly hope that this is one of the issues that is going to be taken up by the uh, National Anti-Corruption Advisory Committee. Uh, uh, which has been mandated to look at mechanisms of strengthening uh, our anti-corruption uh, architecture. So uh, that's something I think uh, government needs to do, the National uh, uh, Anti-Corruption Advisory Council needs to take on board, uh, and, and a responsibility, I would say, of all employers in both the public and the private sectors as well. If I were to broaden it up across all the, you know, uh, of course, the legislative reforms, reforms that have had to happen as a result of the uh, Zonda recommendations. Would you say that there's been enough public awareness as to this is what uh, government intends to do? This is where government is at this point in terms of the process of reviewing the recommendations and, and implementing them generally. Has there been a spirit of including South Africans in the process of implementing the Zondo Commission recommendations, would you say? No, I, I don't think there's been sufficient uh, public discussion around a range of issues, and it's largely been left to uh, civil society organizations to foster those discussions and debate. You know, government has, uh, you know, uh, apart from the president making his announcement in uh, October last year and a couple of updates that we've, re we've received from, from uh, government, there's been very little information forthcoming. And, you know, you take as an example the recent uh, uh, dispute that arose 
between the Chief Justice and uh, Parliament in particular on the basis of uh, the, com the comments of the Chief Justice at the uh, at a, uh, a meeting that was uh, held to commemorate the first anniversary of the release of the reports. Uh, it shows the sort of defensive stature of, uh, of Parliament in that case in particular, uh, and you know not wish, willing to engage openly on exactly what they have done, mm. what measures, concrete measures have they taken uh, to put in, uh, you know, to deal with the recommendations rather than simply say, well, we've set up a, a number of committees to do this, but uh, there's no report on what the committees themselves have actually done. So I think there's a there's a reluctance on the part of both Parliament and government to really engage proactively on, on the recommendations uh, and only to do so when, when absolutely necessary. And I think this has, has hampered the level of a public uh, uh, awareness around the issues, but I think perhaps more importantly has led to a sense of public distrust that, you know, once again, we have a, a, a commission of inquiry, we have a detailed report, but uh, it appears that nobody's really taking those recommendations seriously. And I think that uh, that would be a very dangerous place to enter into because these, these um, recommendations that Zondo has made, uh, certainly the, what I call the systemic recommendations, are not just about overcoming corruption and state capture, but also about strengthening the foundations of our democracy. It certainly flies the, 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 the environment or, or the circumstances around which the implementations are happening fly in the opposite direction of where Zondo, it's, uh, the Zondo Commission itself, um, you know, the spirit of the Zondo Commission, in that uh, from the very beginning, the, the Chief Justice saw it fit to make sure that uh, the, the hearings were open to the public, and that they were broadcast um, on on a regular basis and, and on television and things like that. So, from from that perspective, um, because the commission had wanted the part, uh, the members of the public to be part of the process of it unraveling and, and and unearthing what is wrong with state institutions in this country. What what would you recommend that uh, members of the public should do in terms of um, demanding accountability on the part of government and, as you say, parliament, um, which has the, you know, the authority and the responsibility to, to, um, to hold um, government departments accountable to the public. How do I, as a member of the public, uh, how do I go about demanding that accountability and making sure that I am educated, empowered about the processes that uh, in response to to the Zondo recommendations. Well, look, I think uh, you know. Uh, firstly, it was incredibly important that uh, the work of the Zondo Commission took place in the full uh, full face of public uh, uh, of the public. We we saw and heard uh, the testimony on a daily basis, and I think South Africans are very are now uh, familiar with exactly what happened um, in the course of uh, of, of state capture. Uh, you know, of course, ultimately, the report that came out was almost 5,000 pages long, and obviously very few people are going to read that full report. But again, I think the media has done well, and I think that they must be commended for, you know, for highlighting some of the key recommendations that were made. I think there's perhaps, uh, you know, a lot of focus on individual prosecutions that should be emanating from the Zonda Commission, which are which are really important in themselves. Those, um, 
those uh, those prosecutions, but we also need to keep in mind the broader issues that are that are raised in the report. So I think uh, you know there is a there is a level of public awareness about what needs to be done, and I think uh, you know ultimately government and, and parliament will be judged on on what they do, um, rather than on what they say. And uh, you know when it comes to you know how do we as ordinary citizens demand that level of accountability? Well, you know I think we discussed earlier the weaknesses of the current electoral system. So you know who do you go to as a, as a local representative? Uh, to air those grievances within the current uh, uh, electoral system doesn't allow us to do that. So uh, it is difficult to engage on a on a one-on-one -on -one basis in that way. But I think, uh, as we've discussed, avenues have, have opened up in terms of uh, public comment on, on legislation, on policy proposals regarding whistleblowing and the like. And I think uh, we must take advantage of those opportunities. And take advantage, we will. Well, I, I think that's a great place to, to end this conversation. Thank you so, so much, Lawson, for um, engaging with us. Uh, I wish you, you and Perry, of course, all of the best with the upcoming co uh, conference. I will be part of it. I will be attending myself. And I look forward to, of course, um, all the speakers, including, of course, uh, the Chief Justice himself. Indeed. I look forward to seeing you there. And we hope that it's going to be another important conference that helps to take the conversation about the Zondo Commission recommendations forward. I suppose that's a good place to stop for today. It's been another great episode of the Zondo Commission Unpacked by Corruption Watch. We are produced by Volume Podcasts, and I am your host, Moibeng Valley Shetalani. Thank you very much for joining us. Stay blessed. See you next time. Volume.